If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. And this is going to be an interesting sermon because we're going to walk through about four chapters in Exodus this morning. Um, and we'll be done at about 8.30. No, I'm just playing. We're going to walk through, we're going to walk through the plagues this morning, the, um, the infamous or the famous plagues um, of Scripture. They are obviously um, the highlights for many people. Uh, when they think about the Old Testament, they think about Moses. And when they think about the Old Testament, they think about the ten plagues that, that came through Egypt in such a, such a awe-inspiring and awe-shaping way. And so many of us, when we think about the Old Testament, this is what we're thinking about. And, and when you see the movies, the movies kind of paint this, uh, this moment uh, with the plagues kind of like this. It almost feels, feels aimless in a sense. It's just like God is, God is obviously just flexing, but, but he's just kind of flexing by just doing a bunch of things. And, 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 it, and it's hard to capture or understand when you're watching the movies what exactly is God doing? What's, what's, his, what's his purpose right now for, for what he's doing? He, he unleashes these ten particular plagues, and, 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 and there seems to be something that he's doing, but it doesn't necessarily register for, for a lot of us, especially, like I said, when you're watching the movies, what he's doing. I mean, he's already said, let my people go that they may worship me. Remember, we talked about the ideal of this deliverance being not just for deliverance sake, but this deliverance being for the purpose of worship. And so God has already said, let my people go that they may worship me. And so we, we think, okay, if this is God's aim, then certainly God would show up with Moses and set the people free that they may worship him. But that's not how it goes. He spends time, and, and, and some scholars speculate that this could have, been, oh, this could have taken place over the course of nine months where, Pharaoh go, where Moses and Aaron go back and forth to Pharaoh, and Aaron raises his staff sometimes, and a plague comes, and, and nobody raises their staff sometimes, and a plague comes, and Moses raises his staff sometimes, and a plague comes. And every single time, Pharaoh's like, nah, nah, I'm not interested. Not in Wait, no, nah, I'm not interested. I'm just playing. And so it goes back and, and there, there, there's this back and forth where it seems like if God was interested in delivering his people, he would just say, obliterate everything, people come, that you may worship me. So what is God doing in this moment? What is God doing? I think there are several things that we can look at and see God doing in this text. Number one, I think God is desiring to show himself as God in this moment. God desires to show himself as God. Number two, I think God desires to show himself as the sustainer of all order in the midst of chaos. And then lastly, among a million other things I'm sure God is doing, I think God is trying to show us that he is relentlessly merciful. Relentlessly merciful. You know, when you look at, when you look at the plagues through these chapters, there actually is a recurring pattern that develops in the midst of all of this. There is, there is a, a, a consistent pattern, if you will. Number one, God sends Aaron and Moses to Pharaoh. 
He says, hey, here's another chance. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, not interested. So there is a pattern of obedience, or there is an element of obedience and disobedience. One, the obedience of Aaron and Moses to go when God says go and speak. And disobedience when, when they speak to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says not interested. But there's also an element here of God demonstrating his power as a pattern. So over and over again, we hear, we see God say go, they go, they speak, Pharaoh says not interested, and then God demonstrates power. And then early on, we see a part, as a part of the pattern, this imitation or this mimicking of God by Pharaoh and his magicians. So God demonstrates power, and then the magicians come along, and they do some abracadabra, and, and, and voila, they show themselves to be, quote-unquote, on par with this God. And then you see this happen over and over again. And then lastly, part of the pattern over and over again is that you see Pharaoh respond to the plagues with, with some back and forth before finally saying, no, I will not let the Israelites go. And that happens over and over and over again. Sometimes he just stubbornly refuses. Sometimes he tries to negotiate. He says, well, what if I just send your men? And, of course, that's not sufficient. That's not where God is at. And then sometimes he just flat out reneges and says, yes, 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 tell God to stop, and then I'll, I'll send them out. And then God stops him, and he says, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But that's the pattern over and over and over and over again, except the severity and the damage continues to escalate as this pattern ensues throughout these three to four chapters. Now, here's the question. The first question is, why does God, and we just asked this, why does God choose to handle Israel's release and Israel's freedom this way? And I think, again, the first answer to that question is that because God is demonstrating himself as God. When you look at first, for example, chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I will, I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. They shall know that I am the Lord. God is demonstrating himself as God. He wants to declare to the nations that he is the God, not a God. But the God, and it's important that I say not a God because Egypt is a very polytheistic culture and nation, meaning that it is not simply a no-God culture. It's not atheistic, and it is not a one-God culture, monotheistic, but it is a many-God culture. In fact, what scholars would argue is that what God is doing with the ten plagues is that he is literally abolishing gods in the midst of the plagues. For example, when you look at the first plague, which is God turning the Nile River to blood, there's a god, a, a 
a god, a bull god, literally an animal bull that is considered the god of the Nile in Egypt. There is a goddess of the Nile that the Egyptians worshipped. There is a god guardian of the Nile. And so when God turns this river to blood, he is saying none of those gods matter. All of those gods bow their knee or bow, or bow a knee to me. When he moves to frogs, there is literally an Egyptian god that has the head of a frog. When he moves to the depth of the livestock, there is literally an Egyptian god that, is, that has a, a cow head. A bull god that is considered a fertility god. When he moves to boils, there are gods that, that are supposed to be protectors or, or, or hold power over disease and illness. There are gods that are supposed to hold power over pestilence. There's gods that are supposed to be healers in Egypt. And the Egyptians worship all of these gods, and yet God, the God, is coming on the scene and laying waste to all the ideals that the Egyptians have about what God's reign supreme. He is saying, no, I am the Lord. And you can see this battle being waged early on, right? The first three plagues, the, 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 the Nile being turned to blood and the frogs coming out of the Nile and, 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 and literally covering the land and then the gnats. Which, we, which scholars don't know if it's gnats or lice, the King James Version says, or even mosquitoes. I literally curled in my chair when I thought about the idea of mosquitoes literally flooding this city. Might not be scary for you, but it horrifies me to think about that. But nevertheless, it's this idea that, that the first three, the magicians of Pharaoh, try to emulate. And so they imitate them. And there's this little battle going on. It begins when Aaron and Moses, they first, they come, they first come and warn Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, now turning the river, or now being turned to blood, psh, that's nothing. Boy, show them what you got. And then they do some little trick, abracadabra. Next thing you know, they turn water into blood. Ha! What about that, Moses? Moses comes back, and he says, okay, Pharaoh. And then frogs. Aaron raises his staff. Frogs come forth out of the... Nile River and cover the land. Pharaoh says, whatever. Boy, show them what you got. And then the boys go and they do their abracadabra. And next thing you know, what? What happens? Frogs, they come out. Pharaoh says, ha. Foiled again, huh, Moses? And then Moses and Aaron, they come back and they say, Pharaoh, listen. God means business, man. This, he's not a God to play with, right? And so, they, and, so they, and so they call upon God, and God sends gnats, and, and the gnats or the killer mosquitoes cover the entire land, right? And they're, and they're, and they're, surrounding, all, and they're surrounding people, and, 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 and Pharaoh says, whatever. Boy, show them what you got. And then the magicians say, abracadabra, except they can't emulate this. And all of a sudden... Something begins to happen. They begin to realize something. In fact, in, in Exodus chapter 8, after this particular plague comes, this is what the magicians say to Pharaoh. 
Exodus chapter 8, verse 18, they say, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce the gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is the finger of God, they said. Modern translations, as the young folks would say, this God is different. This God is different. This God is next level. This God is above all other gods. And this is the last time that the magicians attempt to replicate what God is doing. There are seven other plagues, as we know, that come through Egypt. None of those plagues are even attempted by the magicians. In fact, one of those plagues ends up impacting the magicians in a particular way when God sends the plague of boils. And the sixth plague, they end up being covered in those boils. That is a part of God's purpose in this text. That is, a God, that is a part of God's purpose in delivering Egypt or delivering Israel the way that he chooses to deliver Israel. And, and, and if I could share something with you, this is a part of God's design, oftentimes in allowing us to live the lives that we live, to endure the suffering that we suffer, to see triumph over pain and loss and sickness and job loss and heartaches. I mean, sometimes we ask ourselves, can't God just come on and just stop all of this craziness? I'm sure when all these plagues were happening, there were Hebrew slaves looking around for nine months saying to themselves, if God wants to deliver us, why doesn't he just deliver us now? What is he waiting on? He is building an eternal and universal testimony concerning himself. Not, not just in the plagues of Egypt, but in your life. He is building an eternal and universal testimony to the world and to the universe, both known and unknown, declaring that I am the Lord. That's what he's building in your life, a testimony. I am the Lord, which is part of the reason your story has so many twists and turns. He's building it in the life of the global church. I am the Lord, which is why the global church story or the global church's story has so many twists and so many turns. He's building it in the very fabric of history. I am the Lord. Even when we come to the seventh plague and Chapter 9, the plague of hail. God again shows his hand to Pharaoh. He says in verse 13, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh, and say, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on yourself, on you yourself, and on your servants, and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put my hand, or put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. 
and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that you may so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. I could have did it another way, but I've chosen to do it this way so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So part of the purpose of God delivering Egypt the way he delivers them is to demonstrate his greatness and show forth his glory that his name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Here's a second question for you this morning. Does this story remind you of anything? These plagues that are, that are happening one after the other, this chaos in the water where the water is turned into blood, this chaos in the animals, frogs covering the land, livestock dropping dead, insects, gnats and flies, which are the third and fourth plagues covering the land, this chaos in the ground, in the air, hailstorms raining down on the land, the seventh plague. This chaos in the sources of light, darkness covering the land in the ninth plague. Does any of this point you to anything? It should. It should point you back to Genesis 1 and 2. It should point you back to creation. Creation in, these in this demonstration, creation is turning in on itself. Scholars, in fact, call these, this series of plagues a decreation demonstration. It's bringing chaos out of order. Creation was bringing order out of chaos. Remember, according to Genesis 1, before, uh, before God spoke into the atmosphere, that the creation was without form and without void. It was, or, it, it was, it was voidless. It, it, was, it was void and it was unordered. It was chaotic. It was, there was darkness across the land. And then we read in chapter 1, verse 3, and then God said, let there be light. And from that moment, order began to be established because God was present. Streams were created that brought life to animals and brought life to humanity. Insects began to adapt to their own, to their God-given purposes and their God-given rhythms. And, and animals began to adapt to their God-given purposes and their God-given rhythms. And celestial lights, the moon and the stars and the sun, began to set in place, began to be set in order. And they began to adapt to their purposes and their God-given rhythms. In God, order was established, but Egypt was trying to operate outside of this God. And thus they found themselves in chaos before this God. They had forged their own God. And in some ways, had looked to Pharaoh as their God. And, and in some ways, even looked to themselves as God. And God was now showing them the end result of such aimless and fruitless pursuits. That they could not look elsewhere to find someone to worship. 
Because any other identity or any other source of worship only brings chaos. There is only one who brings order out of chaos. There is only one who sustains us through chaos. And that's God, the Lord. Even in some ways, when you look at the chaos, you notice that it is progressive in some sense. It starts in the water, right? The water turns into blood. The water becomes polluted. And obviously, this is the most precious, precious resource in Egypt. And now this resource, this precious resource that they rely so heavily upon, all of a sudden now it's gone. And of course, the frogs are summoned. But you got to think, that's a natural progression, right? What frogs hanging out in the blood, bloody water? They're coming out too, right? And then Pharaoh pleads with Moses, Moses, please, 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 I'll do whatever you need me to do. Just get these frogs out of here. Moses goes back to God. God says, okay, and all the frogs die. Pharaoh says, ha, foiled again, Moses, not doing that. And then what happens? Moses goes to God. God sends all the frogs die. What comes? Gnats and flies. That seems like a natural progression, right? Gnats and flies after water has been polluted and bloodied and after, after frogs all over Egypt have now died and there's a stench all over the land, the Bible says. Flies. Makes sense. All of this makes sense. And you continue on and on because what happens? Well, the livestock dies. Makes sense. You got... Water that's turned into blood, and then frogs have come out, and they've died, and then now gnats and flies are all over the place carrying what, what, whatever West Nile virus of that day that was being circulated. And guess what? Okay, people are being infected, and people and animals are dying. These are plagues, but these are progressions. They make sense, don't they? This is the nature of disobedience, by the way. Every act of defiance that we commit against God is an invitation for the chaos to run its course in our lives. It's progressive. It makes sense. When the chaos is introduced into your life, most of the time, it is a logical formation as to how it came about. The man who is, who is now without, without his wife after committing adultery, that makes sense. The hard worker who has committed their lives to a job and then they don't get the job that they were committing their lives to and now they're, they feel like their entire lives are ruined and they want to commit suicide, that makes sense. Because our disobedience our refusal to place God at the top of our lives brings with it a natural disorder, a progressive chaos. When we try to make work supreme and we devote all of our time and our energy to building a career, we invite chaos, we invite disorder, we invite unhealthy emotions when we don't get that position that we've committed everything in order to get. 
We do this and we wonder why the job is taking so much away from us, but that is just logical progression in disobedience. When we try to make when we try to make our relationships supreme and we make them little gods over God and we pursue relationships that we know God is against and we try to force square pegs and round holes and we try to build companionship and intimacy with people we don't, who we know don't love Jesus or who we know don't place Jesus first, we are introducing and inviting chaos and disorder into our lives. And we do that, and then we wonder why the relationship is breaking down. It's logical. When we try to make sex supreme, and we take it outside of God's design of covenant marriage between one man and one woman, we invite chaos into our lives. When we try to make politics supreme, and we start to make politics a litmus test for fellowship, and we try to tell Christians that you can't love God as a Democrat, or you can't love God as a Republican, or you can't love God as a third-party voter, and then we wonder why churches are divided. We are inviting chaos. It's logical why there's, why there's so much disruption and disorder. Anytime we try to place something above God, in the place of God, we are inviting that chaos and that disorder. In fact, when you read Romans 1, one of the interesting things about Romans 1 is that when, God, when Paul begins to unveil the wrath of God and how it is manifesting itself in the result of sinful people, he speaks multiple times about God handing us over. In other words, handing us over to the logical progression of our rebellion. Handing us over to the inability to discern right from wrong. Handing us over to the logical progression of our passions. Handing us over to the logical progression of our lust. Because that's what disobedience does. It invites chaos and disorder. However, when we turn to God, we find order. You see, God created order out of chaos. And every new creation that he's producing is a bringing back into order from chaos. You even see it when you look at Jesus, right? Jesus comes and the chaos of the storms are calmed. Jesus comes and the waves, the chaos of the waves that are crashing are calmed. Jesus comes and the chaos of illness, human illness, such as death, deafness, and blindness are healed. Why? These things aren't supposed to be. They're a product of our sinful nature. They're a product of this sinful world that we live in. But Jesus shows up. And he shows up showing that he is the one who brings order out of chaos. In fact, Colossians chapter 1 tells us that he is the sustainer of all things. He keeps all things in order. And in Christ, we see a repairing of creation as it was intended to be. Because Christ himself is God. That's why our lives, that's why your lives make so much sense and work so much better when you are clinging to Christ. 
That's why your lives make so much sense when you are holding fast to Jesus, when you are resting in him. Because he's the only one that can bring order out of this. And that's why it makes so much sense when you are in him. And that's why we must continue to rest and stay and cling to him. If you want order and chaos, if you want calm and storms, if you want peace in the midst of unresolved conflict, then you must find your life in Jesus, in Christ alone. Lastly, one last thing God is teaching us in the plagues. He's teaching us mercy. He's teaching us mercy. Mercy? What? Where'd that come from? He's talking about mercy. He's turning rivers into blood. Frogs are jumping out and attacking people. Killing mosquitoes or biting people. There are bumps all over their faces now. What, what are you talking about? Hell storms are destroying crops and property and land. How is this merciful? There's a couple of ways. Number one, the people of Israel. An interesting thing happens in all of these plagues. We'll talk about the 10th and the final one next week. But the first nine, as all of this craziness and chaos is ensuing, God is protecting them the entire time. In fact, it is declared on several occasions in the midst of the plagues that the, that the place where Israel resides, Goshen, that there was nothing happening there. So the hailstorms were coming, the people of Israel were protected. Flies and gnats were coming, people of Israel were protected. It was not impacting them. Why? 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 Was it because Israel was so much better than Egypt, so much smarter, so much more righteous than them? But come on. No, of course not. It's because Israel was God's people. It was, there, it was because they were God's people. They trusted him. They called upon him. He answered their call. And he protected them in the, in the, with order in the midst of disorder. He protected them with peace in the midst of chaos. And so you see God's mercy even at work in judgment. When everything is going crazy, Israel is still protected. Mercy in the midst of judgment. But also, you see mercy in the way that God handles Egypt. You see it in, for example, verse 17 of chapter 9, which we read earlier. It says this. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow... I will cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. 
He was talking to Egypt. Moses goes to Pharaoh, and Moses says the seventh plague is coming, a hailstorm, and you need to get your people and your things inside because it's going to be really bad. Now think about that. Think about what's happening here. God is judging this nation, and yet God is offering mercy to this nation. You see that? How easy it could have been, right? I mean, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's mocked God at this point. He's mocked his servants. How easy it could have been to wait to the moment where everybody's outside and then bring the hailstorm. But instead, God says, a hailstorm is coming, and you need to protect. That is an extension of mercy even in the midst of judgment. Brothers and sisters, the fact that God brings ten plagues and not one that destroys Egypt is an extension of mercy in the midst of judgment. He gives them chance after chance after chance to turn and, and relent and let his people go that they may worship him. That is mercy. And then, of course, we, look, we, we, we don't have to look any further than to Pharaoh. We see in Pharaoh God's mercy. Pharaoh reneges. He says, yes, yeah, sure, I'll let him go. No, I won't let him go. Pharaoh negotiates where there are no negotiations. Pharaoh outright rejects. And yet over and over and over again, he's given opportunities. And here's the interesting thing. There's times where it says the Bible says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then there are times when the Bible says Pharaoh hardens his heart. And what you see here, well, in some ways you see the same thing that you often see when you look to the New Testament and there is this rejection of God. And so God, and so in the midst of that rejection, there is a deeper blindness that comes. And so in other words, a hardened heart becomes hard more, even, even more hardened as a result of them hardening themselves. And so you see this, you see this tension here where, where, where there is God demonstrating his glory. As a matter of fact, he says, I am hardening Pharaoh's heart in order that I may display my glory. But then you see Pharaoh hardening his heart over and over and over and over again. And you see him having these opportunities and yet pushing back. You see him not interested in repentance, only interested in safety, which is why he says, please, please get the frogs out of here, and then I'll let you go. And then when they get the frogs out, when God gets the frogs out, they say, no, I'm not interested. Because he's not interested in repentance. He's interested in safety. The family of God, God's goodness, his mercy, his grace is intended to bring about Repentance. You know, some of us look at Pharaoh and we look at, we look at Pharaoh and we look at Egypt and we say, oh my goodness, these people, what more did they need to see? What more did they need to see in order to, in order to turn their hearts over to God and lay down their lives and embrace him as Lord, the Lord? What more did they need to see? Brothers and sisters, I'm asking myself the same question about me. What more do I need to see? To make him the preeminent in my life, to make him the supreme in my life, to not look to other sources for satisfaction and to not look to other sources for joy and to not look for other, or to other sources for peace. What more do I need to see? He's shown me enough. 
And yet his mercy continues to show me more. Day after day after day after day. And so we see God's mercy in the midst of these plagues. You know, saints of God, this, is, this, this mercy does not end at the plague. Of course, we see these plagues, but these plagues, of course, are only shadows pointing to the coming judgment, the final judgment, where opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity has been given to us to accept and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In fact, we see shadows of these plagues in Christ, when he is on the cross and he is receiving upon himself the wrath of God, absorbing it in order that his people might be protected. He becomes the absorber of the plague of sin in order that you and I might find the mercy of God in the midst of judgment. And so God has given us and is giving us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to do what? To embrace him as Lord and Savior, to embrace his son, the one whom he has sent out of his love for this world, to embrace him as Lord. I am the Lord, says Jesus Christ. And all that is happening in this world is intended to point to that truth, to point us to that truth, that we might embrace him for who he is. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.